Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. With the kids and Freya was asking me to explain how the universe is expanding. (laughs) (laughs) And does that mean that things are getting bigger? Um, Anyway, I have no explanations for such things. Lexi actually had some better ideas (laughs) than I did. (laughs) The kids always seem to ask me questions I can't understand. But, like, I I can't explain the science, but I think that we do know that our universe is expanding. And just as we were sitting there listening to that song, I thought, you know, the invitation that's ever in front of us is that we would participate in what God is is doing in this world and if our universe is expanding then the invitation for us is that we keep expanding and I don't mean we we keep eating but I mean like that the closed off and narrow places of our lives that are small are invited into the spirit's place where we keep growing and that there's always space for more um Anyway, I was just thinking that. So God, would you, would you enlarge us? Would you enlarge our hearts? Would you enlarge our minds? Would you enlarge our strength? Would you enlarge our souls so that we can hold more of your love, that we can share more of your love, that we can, can open up the narrow and closed off places of our lives to your goodness and your grace and your mercy which is ever calling us forth into your kingdom. Amen. I'm going to be talking about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness today. Now, and the idea is that I'll talk about this a bit today and then next week in house churches you'll get to unpack it together. Um, I had actually planned this back in July and had a podcast episode. I'd had this sermon preached in Archie's bedroom on the podcast um, because the idea was that you would listen to it and then the, the following week in house churches you'd unpack it back in July and that's when we put everything on pause. So going back this week to, to look at this message and read my notes. And the reason I felt like I really wanted to do it like this and, and give this one in particular a little bit more attention is that I, if I was to think that the Holy Spirit, I mean I think the Spirit of God's been doing lots of things this year um, at, or, or perhaps I probably the truth is we've been paying more attention to what the Spirit of God is always doing. But the, the issues of justice, I feel, have really risen to the surface in 2020, in a, risen to our consciousness in a way that perhaps is new. Um, you know, that comes through the Black Lives Matter um, movement. It comes through creation justice that we've become more aware of as our world has slowed and we've recognised the impact of human activity on our on, on our on creation and so I feel like it's risen in consciousness and then when we approach this you know blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness I just felt like it was important to to talk about it a little bit more um, so that we can participate in whatever it is that that God is doing um, and I've got maybe a lot to say and I haven't preached a message in a heck of a long time so I might at some point just stop <laughs> I feel like very rusty, 
It's been a long time. And also, to be honest, ring a bell. <laughs> give, give me a minute. Give me a five-minute warning. I feel like um, I think I've always had um, a lot of tension with um, the sermon and I've had a, a lot of issue probably with the way it is done in the church in general and by and large my issues have to do with the fact that you're all looking at me like I know what I'm talking about um, and sometimes I don't. Um, and I'm saying things anyway. And also, um, I think I take issue a lot of the time with the notion that the person speaking, that, that there's really only one way to understand uh, the scriptures and that the person who holds the mic gets to tell you what is that one way. And I think we've all been in churches that have... Um, been hard on the right way to believe and the more I read the Bible uh, the more I know there's more than one way to understand this thing and so I, I say all of that especially today because I'm almost deliberately taking a way of reading some of this scripture that you might just go yeah nah um, and so I'm giving you permission to put t- this sermon in your nah box um, uh, there's a podcast I listen to and a guy talks about he's got a nah box like in his mind, and if he hears something, he just thinks, oh, nah. He just puts it in his nah box. And I thought, that was so good. I need a nah box. Like, it doesn't mean that, uh, that it's wrong. It's just like, nah, not for me today. And so, and so what I guess I'm saying all of that to say what I'm talking about today is not necessarily the thing or the way to read the scriptures we're going to read or the only interpretation of stuff. It's, it's one way we possibly could understand it. And by and large, if there's anything I think the sermon should do, it should provoke us to expand. You might put lots of things you hear in a nah box and there might be some stuff that causes your, your mind to, to go good places and your heart to expand and whatever happens, happens. So anyway, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, um, for they will be filled. So first up, basically what I want to say is essentially that word righteousness could just as easily be translated justice. So hence, hence why I've been talking a bit about justice. That, that Greek word um, is dikaiosina. Um, and it, can, it, it does mean righteousness. It can also mean justice. Um, and so... Often in the scriptures in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for righteousness and the Greek word, they, they can use, sometimes be interchangeably used, righteousness and justice, depending on the context. So we're talking about similar things in this sense when we talk about righteousness. Now, the notion of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this is what I want to say. This is the interesting thing, I think, about this beatitude is because Jesus is actually saying that the place of blessing is when you're hungry or you're thirsty, not when you're satisfied. Now, he does say that the, the outcome of the hungering and the thirsting is satisfaction, but he's locating the blessing in the place of hunger and thirst, which is, which is just a challenge for us because we don't usually associate being hungry and thirsty as the place of blessing. We usually associate that, you know, say, you know, really satisfied, big meal, like, oh, now I'm satisfied. But Jesus is saying the place of blessing is actually when you crave, long for, seek, 
when you suffer want, when you, when you are suffering the want of something that you don't yet have, that is the place of blessing. Um, and in this instance, he's talking about, you know, when you are suffering the want of justice, that is the place of blessing. Now, I feel like, you know, as a, a challenge to all of us sitting here that I think we have to take seriously is I think the reality, if we're all honest with our, ourselves, is that none of us actually are really suffering the want of justice in our lives. Most of us, if we are, you know, so we might have sort of some, some personal injustices that we wrestle with, but by and large on a scale of the injustices of our world, we're all sitting pretty close to the top of the privilege tree. And so the acknowledgement in this beatitude is simply not that we're terrible, but that by, by our own ability to satisfy our wants and needs through things or our own sense of privilege we wouldn't necessarily be placed in the category of blessed by Jesus in this beatitude. doesn't mean we're cursed. It's like not the opposite isn't like we're cursed. It's just that I think what Jesus is essentially saying is it's when, when you have a lack of justice and you are hungering and thirsting for, for, for what is right, that's actually the blessing place. Um, and I guess the invitation, this is if you fall asleep now, the invitation is that even if we ourselves don't suffer that lack, when we get alongside those who do and hunger and thirst alongside them, we're entering the blessing that Jesus is talking about. So we could all go home now. Um, broadly speaking, um, that word righteousness means the state of one who is as they ought to be, righteous, um, a condition acceptable to God. So that's the really, I mean, righteous, let's be honest, righteousness is a Bible word, it's not a common word. We don't go around using that word in everyday language. And so this is one of the challenges of these words is that it just becomes a Bible word for us. And, it, and honestly, I think if you ask most of us to define what righteousness is, we, you know, and so that, that we need to take that into account. It's not a common word. It's a Bible word. And so very broadly, it just means being in right standing with God. That's probably the way you've heard it described. And the truth of the matter is every single one of us are absolutely righteous in the eyes of God. Like you, Because of Christ and his righteousness, we now have the righteousness of Christ. So whether you sinned this morning, stuffed up yesterday, haven't picked up your Bible for six months and don't really even care about that, haven't prayed for a while, not sure what you believe. You are righteous because of Christ. Like your behaviour, your thoughts and your feelings cannot adjust your righteousness. And at some point in our walk in faith, we just have to accept that and live into it. So we can't be on a scale of righteousness. We just are righteous. But also, I guess, more specifically, the idea of righteousness is that it is about justice um, and it's about, um, what have I got up there? Yeah, the virtue which gives each one his due. So I, I kind of understand it like this. We are always righteous. We are always justified before God. But when we participate in right action and justice, we're living up to what we already are. But it doesn't make us what we are. It just means we're living up to what we already are. In the same way that, I mean, this is a really bad example, but 
We make our kids do chores. When they unstack the dishwasher, they're just living up to what it means to be a part of the Mears family. They don't have to unstack the dishwasher to get fed. Like, we, we, that's not our vibe of parenting. Uh, whether they unstack the dishwasher or they don't, they're still a Mears. They're still in the family that does, you know. They, but when they do, it's like a participation in the family. So it's the same with this notion. We are just absolutely justified and righteous in God's eyes. But when we participate in the work of justice and righteousness, we're living into the family values. So that's the sense of this word. Um, primarily in the New Testament, um, N.T. Wright, who's really much smarter than me and we won't go into all of what Paul writes on righteousness because we'd never leave here. Um, it, righteousness is really, it involves membership in the covenant and then behaviour that's appropriate to that membership. That's what is sort of being talked about in the idea of justice and mercy. And so the behaviour that's appropriate to being in covenant righteousness with God is to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, to feed the hungry, to visit the prisoner, to clothe the naked. Like these are When we read all those behaviours that we're well familiar with in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, and that are about justice and equity and bringing you know, freedom and goodness to people, it's just about us living into... Um, the idea of being in covenant relationship. And that's why in the Bible it's talked about that God is just and God is righteous because he behaves appropriately according to the terms and conditions of the covenant. So he holds himself to behave in such a way as well. So that's what we're doing when we're talking about righteousness. So it's not just a spiritual position, but it's like behaviour that we're called into as God's people as well. So in order, I th- well, one of the things, what I want to do basically is look today at a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 15 where perhaps we can see best this beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled, um, and unpack it a little bit in a way that can maybe challenge us in terms of our own behaviour in living up to the righteousness that we already have. So it's from Matthew chapter 15 and I'll just read it out. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged, send her away because she keeps crying out after us. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Don't you love that? <laughs> it's the weirdest passage. And it's very difficult. It's one I have never enjoyed. Um, and it's one that in all my beliefs about, you know, Jesus is loving and gentle and welcoming and gracious and responsive and all of those things that we... And then you get this passage and you're just like, 
And so I, and look, I often ignore just bits like this. Let's be honest, we all do. You get to this bit, put it in the NAR box. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I've wrestled with it. And look, I, this is why I want to say, that's what I said at the start. There are many ways we can understand what's going on here. And I don't claim that what I'm about to say is the way to understand what's going on. This is just a suggestion of what's going on. Because when I read this, I feel like Jesus actually seems quite offensive to this woman and even derogatory in the way that he speaks to her. And I know there's suggestions in this passage that maybe Jesus was tired, like maybe he's had a difficult day, maybe he's had a bad day. Maybe this is Jesus on a bad day. Um, I still don't think that lets him off the hook with how he speaks to this woman. Um, there's, lot, yeah, there's lots of things we can think, but on face value and as you read it, it just feels like um, this is really inappropriate, Jesus, and unfair. <laughs> and it's really, I feel, that almost the only example in Scripture, in, in the Gospels, where we get someone coming to Jesus with a genuine need and he responds like this. Like, oh, I think every, I mean, he, he responds a little bit, you know, feistily to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and other people who, who he would, you know, he's instructing in a sense. But I don't ever see him responding like this to anybody else who throws themselves at, at Jesus' feet needing something. Like in nearly every other instance, he's gracious. And in fact, one of the things that always perturbed me was the very thing she cries out to Jesus in the beginning. It's like, Lord, what is it? Um, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. It's like the exact thing that the blind beggar in Luke cries out to Jesus. Like Jesus is walking in a crowd with his disciples. We've got blind dude on the side and he cries out Lord son of David have mercy on me and what does Jesus do stops the whole parade and turns around and draws near to this blind man and yet in this story we have this woman kind of calling out the same thing to Jesus and Jesus ignores her and keeps walking and then anyway so I thought maybe what we could do is just have a little bit of a walk through this and on what I'm going to be doing is maybe giving us Maybe a, a reading that, that, that leans into justice and a reading that deals with some of the cultural stuff um, that is going on here in, so that we can challenge ourselves, I guess. So the first thing that I want to say is the Canaanites, this woman, this woman is a Canaanite woman. If you know your Bible history, the Canaanites are not the friends of Israel ever. Um, they are always the enemy and they are the Gentiles and they are even described in the Old Testament as, as those who are cursed. So that's the history we have going on here. We have this Canaanite woman from a cursed, outsider, Gentile, unclean, bad tribe coming to a Jewish man who is the chosen people God's holy, you know, holy ones. So there is no love lost between these two people groups. There is no love lost between these two cultures. Um, and so she, already there's like this cultural dynamic going on. In our day, we might even say there's a racial dynamic going on where in this story the 
privileged race were, were the Israelites and the Canaanites were seen as less than. Um, and so she comes to Jesus, she throws herself at Jesus' feet and obviously she's a being annoying because, you know, the disciples tell Jesus, can you stop ignoring her? Obviously Jesus' response is just like, oh, just ignore her, maybe she'll go away. I don't know, like I'm reading between the lines a bit, but he clearly doesn't respond. She's following after them maybe, I don't know, picture it in your mind. Jesus has got his gang of 12 and then there's this annoying woman following after them crying out and Jesus is doing nothing about it so some of the disciples are like look Jesus can you do something about this can you like send her away and so his response is I'm only here for the lost sheep of Israel in other words she's not my problem and I'm and I'm not here for her She keeps hungering and thirsting for righteousness and then, um, you know, throws herself at Jesus' feet and then Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread. Now, who are the children? God's people, the Israelites, and toss it to the dogs. Who are the dogs? The Gentiles. In fact, there were rabbis around Jesus' time that would have statements like, those who eat with Gentiles are like those who eat with dogs. So that's the cultural cliche that's coming out in this story. Um, It it comes close, I suppose, to Jesus calling her a dog. (laughs) Close. Um, And she, feisty, hungry, thirsty, responds, yes, it is. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus then, after that response, kind of like in, I th- enjoys the moment. And I, I imagine he probably laughed at this, not at this woman, but just enjoying this woman's tenacity and her feistiness. And he responds and says, your daughter is, is, is healed. Um, and she gets, she gets what she's after. And it's interesting because to me, I think, you know, that the place of blessedness in this story is not with Jesus and his disciples. The place of blessedness, according to our beatitude, is with this woman, even though she is the one being rebuffed, being ignored, being silenced, and maybe being culturally um, abused or at least slandered Um, and so I think there's lots going on here and if we had more time we could unpack a lot of what you know some of the dynamics some of the dynamics that are really simple is it's really inappropriate culturally for this woman to come to Jesus completely off limits for an for an unconnected woman to approach a man because in that society women had no agency Um, so it she's being very inappropriate to for them being Jews and she's a Canaanite she's unclean they wouldn't want to touch her if they touched her and engaged with her they'd have to go through this whole rigmarole of becoming clean again so there's sort of cleanliness and sort of purity laws at place here um Jesus as Jesus in this story as we can see is the the most powerful person in the social hierarchy because Number one, he's a man. Number two, he's a Jew. Number three, he's seen as the teacher. That's why the disciples are like, you need to deal with this, Jesus, because they're appealing to his highest social rank because the highest socially ranked man in any 
social setting would be the one that's responsible for everybody else's place. <laughs> so they're right. They're right in calling Jesus to deal with her. That's actually culturally right to them. We read it and we go, this is so messed up. But in their culture, everything about the way Jesus responded was appropriate and right within their honour and shame system. So he's only behaving in the way that his culture demands and requires and has patterned him to respond. So we feel like this is offensive, but back then she would have been offensive and Jesus would have been right, if that makes sense. Um, One of the things I guess I want to challenge us to think about in this, and this is the bit that you can put in your nar box and just say that you disagree, is that I wonder if this is the clearest, one, almost the clearest instances, instance we have of Jesus changing his mind about something. I wonder if, you know, when Jesus says, you know, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel, we see you know, in him this understanding that he did actually believe he'd come but primarily for the Israelites. And she actually provokes him to expand his thinking and change his mind and realise that actually he's not only come for the Israelites, his ministry and work and calling is for the entire world. That's a possibility that I want to throw out to you today. Now, Your ability to sit with that will depend on how you feel about the perfection of Jesus, okay? So we know that Jesus in our creedal beliefs is 100% man, 100% God. Most of us struggle more with the 100% man bit of that equation than the 100% God bit of that equation And I would imagine that most of us in our self-imagining of Jesus, we just have him as the perfect one. So when we imagine him as the perfect one, we can't imagine him making any mistakes. We can't imagine him changing his mind because he just has to be perfect all of the time. But I wonder how much that notion of perfection that we impose on Jesus actually denies his humanity. Because what if to be human is to actually grow and learn? And change. And in fact, we have this verse in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, which says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So if you want to hold to a perfect version of Jesus, I just have to ask you so when did he achieve never having to grow anymore in wisdom? When did that happen? Was he 12? Did he just reach? perfect perfection at 12 and then he never had to learn anything new again or was is it to be human to be always growing in wisdom is it to be human to when you're presented with things you don't understand or haven't thought of before or confront your own worldview to actually grow and expand and is this what we're seeing in Jesus here that's a possibility Um, I believe that to accept Jesus's full humanity is not in any way to devalue his divinity. I think we can hold a tension here that we don't have to resolve. But I do wonder if this is an instance we see of Jesus enlarging his perspective, changing his mind, thinking bigger than what he was patterned to think. Um, That's my possible suggestion. 
this is why it matters to me or maybe where, where I go with this in my brain because I recognise the truth is if Jesus is uh, perfect all the time and look, I mostly like lean towards he's pretty awesome all the time but if, if I'm trying to be like Jesus and Jesus is just always perfect, then there's something I do internally in here which is just a thing that goes, oh, well, I'll ne- just never measure up. It's just like you're the perfect older brother, thanks. And it doesn't actually do much to energise. It just makes me feel comparatively less than, if that makes sense. Like if I see just Jesus is perfect all the time and, and I know I will never be perfect all the time, it's just like, oh, well, you can go be perfect all the time and I'll just do me. Like that's probably where I go in my mind. If I can acknowledge that Jesus actually changes and grows and transforms as he interacts with people and God and that that's actually a very healthy, whole, amazing part of being human, then I don't have the excuse of just going, oh, well, you're just perfect and I'm not, so I'll just not. I actually have to confront and embrace the ways that God is calling me to grow and to change and to transform just as Jesus grew and changed and transformed. Does that make sense? So I actually feel like when I can acknowledge that maybe this is a growth moment in Jesus, it excites me because it provokes the fact that I have growth moments too and I'm invited into that. So that that's why I kind of like, that's why I like the idea that maybe this is an instance where we see Jesus growing and changing. But it's not the only reading of this and there are other ways to understand it, so that's what I want to say. So how does this relate to justice? Um, This is what I want to say about justice. Whenever we're dealing with issues of justice, and if we went around the room, we could name a a whole bunch of justice issues, injustice issues, there is usually always a power dynamic at work. It's about power. It's about who has the power and who doesn't have the power. That's essentially what justice is all about. And most of the time when we're talking about justice and injustice, it's usually an unseen power dynamic. So those who are in power cannot see that they are. It's those who lack, who hunger, who thirst, who see clearly the dynamic that's going on. That's why it's the place of blessing. Because usually when you're at the top of any power structure or social dynamic or any kind of hierarchy, you're blind to your own position in it. And it's those on the underside of the power that see it most clearly. And that's where the prophets and the revealers and the truth tellers live. Because they see clearly the dynamics that exist in places where those in privilege and those with power don't see it clearly and I think this story is an instance of that because we have let's just say there are 12 disciples and Jesus we have 13 Jewish men who in this story sit at the top of the tree and we have a Canaanite woman who is a complete unclean outsider who is at the bottom of the tree and she's crying out to those who cannot see the injustice of who's in and who's out She wants to be in on God's good kingdom and she's crying out to be included at the table and they're saying, no, it's not right for you to be here at the table. The table's for the children of God. And she's 
So we have this dynamic where if you can picture it as a story, we have Jesus and his 12 Jewish men sitting around the table and the Canaanite woman's underneath at their feet begging and hoping for crumbs. And you can explain that kind of social um, justice dynamic in nearly every situation that you see things of injustice, whether it's racial injustice, um, gender injustice, like all kinds of things that are in our world that we would identify as issues of injustice. There are always those who are at the table feasting and there are always those who are under the table begging for crumbs. And this is kind of like the picture we see in this story and we have this woman who's under the table begging for crumbs, calling out to be allowed to sit at the table and the the 13 Jewish men are struggling to make space for her because in their social dynamic she doesn't belong. There's no space for her. She doesn't belong at this table because this table's for the children of God and she's not one of them. And the end of the story is Jesus ending up bringing her and making space at the table and saying, you have great faith. And she gets what she's after in that sense of, I see that we see Jesus change and realise that even the Gentiles are welcome at this table. It's a beautiful end of the story. The frustrating thing about those other 12 disciples is that, and it turns out to be 11, 30, 40 years later, they're still arguing about whether or not Gentiles are allowed at the table. Like that's the frustrating thing about this story is most of the dramas of the early church, which we get probably 30 or 40 years after this story, is like, oh, I don't think Gentiles can come. Oh, I think maybe they can come. Oh, no, they can't come. Like that's the, that's the challenge of the, the New Testament. So they still don't get it. But Jesus seems to move pretty quickly to bring this um, woman into the story of God. So I think where I relate to this story is the challenge of where do I find myself like Jesus, blind to those that are underneath my feet hoping for crumbs, and where do I find myself as the woman wanting to be allowed to be at the table? They're the two things that I feel like the Holy Spirit invites us into as we look at this table because we always will have times when we are the ones with power blind to those who don't and we will have things that our eyes are open to injustices and power dynamics and we can see those that don't belong at the table and I think part of what you know we're hearing Jesus say is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is Jesus is saying to us the place of blessing is not when you're sitting at the table the place of blessing is when you're underneath longing for crumbs you want to know where blessing is it's underneath the table and so then the invitation to those of us sitting at the table is are you going to get off your chair and get down with those who don't belong and join in the blessedness of that space and so I really feel like very like simplistically that the work of justice the 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 proper work of living up to our calling as God's holy and righteous people always involves opening our eyes to the dynamic of injustice that's in our world. And when our eyes are open to it, there are different ways that we can respond to it. So one of the ways is if we're, if we're seated at the table, one of the ways to respond is to recognise that maybe we don't want to be sitting at this table if there are people underneath it. 
And so we're going to do a downward move of solidarity and get off our chair and get underneath the table and sit with those who are there and join our voices to those voices who cry out for the crumbs and say, this is not right, we want to belong. So one of the very appropriate moves of justice is to go on a downward journey of solidarity with those who don't belong and use our voice to cry out for justice to those who cannot yet see it. But that's not the only work of justice. There's other things you can do too. You can shuffle everyone along and make space for someone who doesn't belong. There's the work of building a bigger table. Like, there's the work of just acknowledging that there should never be anybody underneath the table. And if we're going to, you know, have enough space in the kingdom of God for everyone, then we better get our tools out and start building a bigger table so that nobody need to be underneath. There's always room for someone more. So there's lots of work of justice that we do in our lives. Sometimes it's a downward move of solidarity with. Sometimes it's an agitating move of, you know, bumping up against those who have the power in order to irritate them to make space for someone else. And sometimes it's simply getting up, getting our hammer and our saw and building along the table. But there's always something to do to address the like imbalances, whether it's racial injustice, gender injustice, sexual injustice, climate injustice, like you name it. You name the issues of justice and injustice in our world and there's always work to do as God's people but usually it starts with listening well enough to the voices that cry out so that we can recognise the ways in which we're at the table and other people are underneath. And that's what Jesus did. And this is why I love Jesus in this story because he just behaved the way his culture had programmed him to behave. But then he was confronted with it and he saw the power imbalance and then he expanded, changed his mind and made room for more. And if Jesus can do that, then it makes me realise that's the call of the way of Jesus to me, that I'm just raised in my culture. I just see things the way I see things. Maybe that's just human. But when I'm confronted with the reality of that, it's my response to open my eyes, listen, and make a change. That's, that's, that's the call. It's not bad to be culturally formed. It's not bad to be a product of your culture. We all just are. That's human. What's bad is when you refuse to see the injustice of the way that you've been raised and then you refuse to make room for those who don't belong in your worldview system. And I think that's what this story really invites us into. Ding-a-ling, ring the bell, finish. Um, what I want to do to finish because, I don't know, Chris and Becca are going to play us another song. Yeah, now. I, one of the things I, I, I just want us to do and we're gonna, you're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll wrestle with this a bit more in house church next week. So there'll be a chance for you to, to talk about this. And I think it'd be great if you think about it this week, and even if you've put it in your nar box, just maybe think about why. Um, but I think what I want us to do as a, as a people here at Central is I've got all these little sheets. Um, I'm hungering and thirsting for a world where. And I feel like even just as one little step today for us to get in touch with issues of injustice, the things we're passionate about, the things we already see. 
I actually want each one of us to take one of these and, um, and to think about one, one area where we are hungering and thirsting for justice in this world, um, where we can see clearly there's something that's amiss and that in the kingdom of God it would actually be different. And then as we come to the communion table in a minute, I want us to all lay out our sheets on the table in that, just in that faithful, simple practice of saying, I want to make more room at the table of the Lord for the things that I see involve injustice. And then when we come for communion, I think we'll all read them because here's the thing, the thing that, the thing that Sarah is hungering and thirsting for justice for might not be my hunger and thirst, but I, I want to know what hers is. Like her, her fight and her call from Jesus to bring equality to certain places in the world may not be the same as mine. I think we've all got different passions and leanings and things that we're, we're called to build more or go in solidarity with, but I want to know what hers is because she might see things that I don't see and Mel might see things that I don't see and as we be together the people of God, it doesn't mean we all have to, you know, do Drew's fight. We don't all have to do Annalisa's fight, but we do need to, to have our eyes opened. And so just as Chris and Becca play this song, maybe just have a think about that issue, any issue of justice that you're aware of. And, and if you think, oh, man, I'm not hungry and thirsty for anything. I'm a bit ordinary in this. That's all right. Just pick something you think I would like to be more hungry and thirsty for this area of righteousness and justice. And yeah, and then we'll come to the table. So thanks, Chris and Becca. Let me uh, read out this prophetic statement of Jeremiah's in uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what the Lord says Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. And Jesus, as we hold these visible symbols of invisible grace in our hands, this body broken, this blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, open our eyes to all the places that we trust in our wisdom or our strength or our riches and call us more and more to be people who delight in your kindness and your justice and your righteousness on this earth. And may we live into the family we belong to by being your people who hunger and thirst for a world where justice and mercy roll like the rivers. And we pray that as we take this body into our body right now, that it will give us all that we need to go out this week as people of justice. Amen. A prayer from Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. 
May you have the courage of the Canaanite woman, blood memory in her bones, endangered language in her lungs, feet dusty with the soil of her people, desperate to find the healing of generations to come. She brings her dispossessed voice right into Jesus' own silence, ignoring the silencing of those who followed him. A one-woman protest, her fidelity to Christ unsettling even Jesus himself. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.